Welcome to another edition of Fair Territory. We are eight days from the deadline. Just eight days. Now, eight days before the deadline, that actually is an eternity. So a lot's going to change, I would imagine, over the next week or so. But a lot won't, and we'll still be talking and speculating and wondering what the heck is going on. So let's start today with the number one story in the sport, whether Shohei Otani will be traded. I will tell you, as of this moment, and again, things can change, it's looking increasingly unlikely. Why is it looking increasingly unlikely? Well, take a look at where the Angels stand and where they are going. Since the All-Star break, they are 6-3. and three. Six and three, pretty good. Upcoming, their upcoming schedule, they've got three in Detroit. Should be a fairly easy series, you would think, for them. And then three in Toronto, not an easy series, but you have Shohei Otani lined up to start the first game there. So the Angels are looking pretty good right now. They're on an upward trajectory. Of course, they're going to get Trout back at some point. And... When you look at the wildcard standings, and forget the Fangraphs' playoff odds for a second, they're 14%. The wildcard standings show you that they're four games out in the wildcard. Tampa Bay leading, Houston and Toronto are the other two teams currently holding positions. Then the Red Sox and the Yankees, and then the Angels, again, four games out. Not insurmountable by any means. You go on one nice streak, and actually they're on a nice streak, and those playoff odds start to rise. So that's part of it, and that's just from the team perspective. From the individual perspective, from Otani himself, let's keep in mind where he is right now. And where he is right now is in the middle of a historic season. This dude is on a 58-homer pace. And while he hasn't pitched as well of late, he's still one of the elite pitchers in the game. So if you're Artie Moreno and you're sitting on all this, you're thinking, am I really going to deprive my fans of a potential 60-homer season? Mm. Am I going to deprive myself of the revenue that that chase might generate? I'm skeptical again about that one. So, again, things can change in a week. And certainly if the Angels go south, the speculation is going to rise. And I expect the speculation is going to continue right up until the deadline because teams will come at the Angels. But at this point... They keep going, and they should keep it going against Detroit. You would think, although they have Eduardo Rodriguez and Lorenzen pitching against them in this series. Well, we'll see where this goes. But right now, if I had to guess, Otani stays. The Angels, of course, are not the only team on the bubble as we get closer to the deadline. There are a number of other teams as well, still kind of not exactly sure where they are. I'm not including the Mets in that. They are not declared sellers yet, but with the Mets, no mas. Enough already. They are not going to be buyers. They're not playing well enough. They are not good enough. Now, I don't expect them to trade Scherzer and Verlander. It's just too complicated, as I've said before. But they can do some lesser things. David Robertson, Pham, and maybe Jose Quintana. They're not a team that I consider on the bubble anymore. But let's look at three teams that I do consider to be on the bubble. Start with the Mariners. Four and a half games back, they've got a tough road here. Minnesota and Arizona, both on the road. Not an easy situation. This is a team, they're 5-5 five and five since the break. Yeah, they're 12-7 and seven in July, but just when you think they get it going, they don't. The Cubs are more interesting. Cubs have won five of their last six. And just when you thought they were done, here they come again. Now, are they a World Series contender? I would say the answer to that is no. But are they playing well enough? You see their upcoming schedule, not that difficult. 
to force their front office to keep Cody Bellinger and Marcus Stroman, to shame them into it. Yeah, they're playing well enough to do that. And the final team on that list was San Diego. And San Diego is a team that, again, five and five since the break, they're not firing just yet. You don't know what they're going to be, but they still have playoff odds above 30%. They still are immensely talented. And their GM, A.J. Preller, has basically signaled, as has their owner, Peter Seidler, that they're not going backwards. So barring a collapse in the final week with them, I don't expect them to trade Blake Snell or Seth Lugo or Josh Hader. I expect them to try to add. Now, how they're going to do that, how dramatically they can move, that remains to be seen. But this is still a team that has invested an awful lot in the season. And I know the Mets have too. But the Padres' mindset seems to be different. Steve Cohen has basically said, as Mets owner, hey, if it's not looking realistic mathematically, we'll sell. Padres haven't said that. Now, what they say and what they do often are two different things at the deadline, but I still expect the Padres to push forward. Now, some non-deadline stuff. One of the things about Hall of Fame weekend that is so great is that it reminds us of how much we love the game, right? When you hear those speeches by Scott Rowland and Fred McGriff and the day before by the BBWA Career Excellence winner John Lowe and Pat Hughes from the Cubs, the Frick winner, you just kind of fall in love with baseball all over again. You remind yourself of why we love this game so much. And there was another thing that happened this weekend that reminded me again of why I love the game so much, and that was being present in Milwaukee on Saturday for South Freelich's Major League debut for the Brewers. Now, it wasn't the only debut in that game. Alan Winans made his debut for the Braves as a starter. This guy was a minor league Rule 5 pick, pitched pretty well. And then Forrest Wall came in, made his debut for the Braves, stole two bases. Nothing compared to, though, what Freelich did. Now, I love debuts. One of my favorite things to cover. I've had some fun moments over the years for Fox covering debuts, interviewing parents as their sons did some big things. Cole Tucker, several years back for the Pirates. It was the same day that Brian Reynolds debuted for the Pirates. Cole Tucker had a home run. I interviewed his parents. It was a, just a memorable, memorable situation. Well, that didn't compare even a little bit to what Freelich did. Freelich goes three for three, gives you the game-tying RBI, the go-ahead RBI, which was on a sacrifice fly, proved the eventual game-winning RBI, and also made two spectacular catches in right field, playing in a stadium where he had never played before, American Family Field. That was just an amazing day. I got to interview his dad during the game, Jeff. We had fun doing that. Then I interviewed Freelich after the game. You might have noticed the Gatorade. Yeah, here it comes. For once I saw it, hey, that's moving pretty quick for an old man right there. I'm not talking about South Freelich. I'm talking about me. But anyway, it was just a blast. And again, I was so excited after the game that we got to witness that. It was a great game, too. Went right down to the end. Devin Williams striking out Ozzie Alves. Just a blast all around. So, Sal Freelich, he provided a moment this weekend, as did the Hall of Famers, just to remind us why we are so passionate about this sport. Why, when you go to the ballpark each day, you don't know what will happen. And why, when you're Scott Rowland and you're Fred McGriff and you go through your career, you're not necessarily thinking about the Hall of Fame. But you know what? You do enough to get there. This is why we love baseball. The deadline is why we love baseball as well. Time now for the inside dish. This is the part of the show where I go inside a story or maybe give you some insight into what I'm working on. 
something along those lines anyway. This week, I want to talk about the trade deadline and covering the trade deadline because it always seems to me when I talk to fans that they're fascinated by this. They're really interested in how guys like me, reporters like me, gather information at this time of year and report it. Now, I'm not going to give away all of my secrets. In fact, I'm not going to give away very many secrets at all while saying that this is not rocket science recovering. This is baseball reporting. So the secrets and the level of the secrets, eh, they only go so far. At the same time, it is an interesting process. And I'll try to give you a little bit of insight into how it works. Now, people wonder how it is that reporters like myself get to the point where we can get information. Well, I've been doing this a long time. Most of the people in my position have been doing this a long time as well. I've been a national baseball reporter for 23 years. That's almost a quarter century. And over time, you meet people, you build relationships, and you start to talk to them, and maybe they'll trust you with information. That's kind of how it works. Now, the deadline is a very tricky thing to cover. It's tricky because no one wants to tell you anything for the most part. And sometimes when people tell you things, it's with an agenda. So you always have to be careful keeping that in mind. And I always try to tell people to, as much as people like myself think we know and try to project that we know, we really don't know a whole lot about what's going on, about all of the individual conversations. We'll catch wind of stuff, but quite often we don't get the true story until much later. And I'll give you a couple of examples of that. Let's go back to 2018, the trade deadline. No one knew at the time that the Nationals were trying to trade Bryce Harper, the potential free agent. They were talking about it. People were talking about it. But the talks never really seemed to gather any momentum, and it was kind of a non-story. Well, four months later, look at this. I found out that the Nationals indeed were talking about trading Bryce Harper. They had a trade in place with the Astros for Bryce Harper, but the Nationals' ownership at the time said no. It was kind of a similar thing with Otani. They didn't want to trade Bryce Harper. Like, the Angels don't want to trade Shohei Otani. Yet, the general manager, Mike Rizzo, did have a deal in place. J.B. Bukowskis was the main piece. He was going back to the Nationals. There were two other minor leaguers involved. One of them was possibly Garrett Stubbs, catcher now with the Phillies, backup. Wouldn't have been a great deal for the Nationals. As it turned out, they didn't even get the draft pick for losing Harper because when they signed Patrick Corbin as a free agent that offseason, well, they lost that pick. Regardless... That was an example of how sometimes you find out things much later. There was another example right at the end of the World Series last year. Jeff Passan of ESPN reported the day after the World Series ended that the Astros had a deal in place to acquire Wilson Contreras from the Cubs for Jose Urquidy. That deal was nixed by the Astros owner, Jim Crane. And that story was meaningful in a couple of different ways, obviously. That trade was very interesting on its own right, but also it further exposed the rift between Astros owner Jim Crane and the general manager James Click, which ultimately led to Click's departure. So we talk about these things. We try to get as much information as we can, but often we don't have the full story until later if we ever get it at all. Now, at this time of year, you'll often see people report things like this team has interest in this player. I don't often do that because my general theory is every team is interested in every player. 
every available player. If you're a contender, you're checking in on all these guys and guys even that you might not think are available. Other reporters have different views of this. They might think there is some news value in saying that Team X has interest in player Y. But to me, nothing is really real until there's momentum, until a deal is close. And when that happens, different story. Now, real-time reporting, which has come about with the advent of social media is really difficult and it can lead to some mistakes and at times I've made them myself the most notable the one I will never forget involved Max Scherzer two years ago I reported that the Padres were close to getting Max Scherzer at the time I followed my normal process I thought I had enough to go with that and obviously I was aware of the implications of reporting that how meaningful it was and it turned out, of course, that Max Scherzer did not go to the Padres. He went to the Dodgers with Trey Turner in a massive blockbuster. Now, you could say, well, I only reported it was close. I didn't report it was done. Yeah, true. I could use that excuse. But the bottom line is, generally, when I report something is close, I think it's happening. It didn't happen. To this day, I still don't know why that report proved inaccurate. Maybe I was played, though I don't think so. Maybe I just misinterpreted what someone was telling me, though I don't really think that happened either. Maybe the Padres were making progress and I caught wind of something, but the timing was just off. I don't know. But anyway, that was the day before the deadline. The next day was the deadline. More was going to happen. I had to go into MLB Network and do my normal thing. Report, be on television, try to break trades, etc. It was one of the most difficult days of my career because I was still hurting from not getting it completely right the day before. So what do you do? You go on, you do your job the best you can, and hopefully you live and learn. And people always say on Twitter when mistakes are made and other reporters make them as well, like I said, real-time reporting is really difficult. You live, you learn, and yes, it's definitely more important to be right than to be first. We all know that. But it's the time of year when people want information, they crave information, we're all vying for information. And I've said that the impact of being first, I've said this in different interviews in the last couple of months, is not what it once was. If I report a trade today, everyone else is gonna confirm it within two or three minutes, most likely. It's pretty rare when you have a scoop that lasts longer than that in this day and age. At the same time, as I just said, hey, man, it's a deadline. Everyone wants to know what's going on, and it's our job to do our best to try to let you know what's going on. Twitter, though, is only so effective. It doesn't give you context. It doesn't really give you background. That is why at this time of year, I write probably more often than I usually do, trying to give context, trying to explain what is going on, why things are happening. No, it's not easy. But I love it. I love the action. And I look forward to an active deadline. I know people are saying this one, it's a weird year, of course, because of all that's going on. We've got high-profile, expensive teams that aren't performing well. Surprise teams emerging. The sport seems upside down. The sellers aren't offering very much because they don't have very much. That said, I still expect it to be active. It is always active, and I will not be sleeping much in the next week. Time now for Dude and Dork of the Week. 
The dude, well, I talked about this guy earlier. He could be the dude of the week. Sal Freelich, one of the most incredible Major League debuts we'll ever see. But I'm going to give it to Austin Riley. Home runs in five straight games this week. Tied an Atlanta Braves record. That's a pretty proud franchise that has had some great players over the years. And it comes at a time for Riley when he was not performing to his usual level. I wouldn't say he was struggling. I think his OPS was still 800. But he told me before the broadcast Saturday that he was kind of too much in his own head. He needed to stop overanalyzing, needed to start having fun again. And it might sound crazy when a guy is performing at that level, a guy who has had two top 10 MVP finishes. It might sound crazy for him to feel that way, but that is how he felt. And it just kind of reinforced to me how difficult the game is. Here's a guy, Austin Riley, one of the biggest stars in the game. And his struggles, by his standards, were getting to him. And I mentioned that to him. I said, Austin, for you to feel that way, it's kind of nuts. And he said, well, we're kind of a crazy breed. Austin Riley, dude of the week. My dork of the week, and this one, I must admit, it pains me. In April, I wrote a story about Jared Kellenick. And it was one of the more fulfilling stories I've written in a while. He was one of the best interviews I've done in a while. Just the way he spoke so maturely. He was talking about his breakout, which at the time was happening. He's since faded, of course. But for a 24-year-old kid, the way he spoke so eloquently, passionately, it was really impressive. To me, Jared Kalanick is still going to be a guy who succeeds. But... I have to give him Dork of the Week because he kicked a water cooler and he broke his left foot. Jared, I know you're passionate, emotional, all that, but you can't do that. He knows all this. He apologized the next day. He actually, in his little press conference with reporters, was really emotional, fighting through tears. It was just an awful circumstance for a team that needs him to be in that position. He's going to learn from it, of course, but... Just a reminder to all the players, if you're going to explode emotionally in the dugout, do it, I guess, like Tommy Canley did it with the Yankees in Anaheim the other day. He took his glove and he threw it at a fan, a dugout fan, not a fan fan, an actual operating fan, one that spins around, generates air, and at least he protected himself from further harm. Jared, I hate giving you Dork of the Week, but I'm going to give it to you, knowing, of course, that in the future you will be a strong candidate for Dude of the Week again. Looking ahead, this week on Fox, Yankees at Orioles. And I'm really excited about this for one reason. Camden Yards is the ballpark where I've worked more than any other park. Why? Because I, for so many years, lived and worked in Baltimore. And it's always cool to go back. Now, it's not going to be so cool this weekend because it's going to be 900 degrees in Baltimore, as it always is this time of year. And... The game before the deadline, the broadcast before the deadline, is always really difficult for me because there is a lot going on, put it that way. I don't know that I'll be so focused on the action on the field because I'll be trying to figure out what is going on off the field. But still, this is a great matchup, and the Orioles, my goodness, three or four from Tampa Bay, they are on fire, best record in the American League. It is just so impressive what they have done, and it's going to be so interesting to see what they do at the deadline because, as I've written on several occasions, they are loaded, folks. They've got more players than they know what to do with. They've got duplicates. If you're a fan of theirs saying, oh, we can't trade our kids, stop it. 
They can trade kids and they've got plenty more kids left. All right, now it's time for Grilling Ken for your questions. Here we go. First question comes from Jace Bean. He asks, do teams get more aggressive on trading for more controllable players this deadline due to the weaker, particularly with bats, free agent class this winter? That's a good question. And it's looking ahead and it's kind of identifying that, yeah, things this winter might not be as rambunctious, at least on the hitting side, as they've been in the past. So, Jace, really, I applaud that question. As for the desire of teams to get controllable players, that to me is not affected by anything because it is always there. Teams want controllable players, period. They want them this deadline, and I expect we're going to see some interesting trades involving major leaguers going back and forth with controllable players. It's just the desire of every team to have a guy that they can keep, not just for this season, but beyond. I don't know that the free agent market and the lack of quality on the free agent market, perceived lack of quality, will affect that very much. Next question comes from Tyler Frazier. Tyler asks, Mariners, buyers or sellers? Great question, Tyler. I alluded to the Mariners earlier, and I talked about their difficult trip ahead, Minnesota and Arizona. And it's almost to the point with them where they're a game over 500, and I'm guessing their front office would like them to go either 6-0 or 0-6 to get some definition here. Jerry DePoto, president of baseball operations, always one of the most active traders. I expect him to be active again, even though he has kind of indicated that he might not do much because of the team's position. It's kind of an odd position. They're not either here nor there, sort of, as far as contending. But I just don't think DePoto is going to sit still and let a deadline pass without him having some say in it. He is a guy who might try to get controllable hitters for the future. And they've got pitching, right? They have great young pitching. I don't know that they want to trade any of it. But they have the ability to do some things because of that. So it's interesting. The Mariners, because of their great young pitching that is currently in the majors, can think we might contend at any point here if we can just get our offense hot course they've been waiting for their offense to get hot all season so i'm not sure what to make of them just yet this week might give us some more insight but i do expect them to do some things and finally from adam adam asks how desirable of a trade piece would jake cronenworth be should preller and the padres decide to sell at the deadline number one i don't expect preller and the padres to sell at the deadline or at least not outright sell maybe they trade some pieces trying to create some payroll flexibility. Maybe they take one of their potential free agents and try to get some things for something else. I don't know exactly, obviously, what they're going to do, but I don't see them as outright sellers. Cronenworth, seven years, 80 million. He signed that deal in April, and guess what? That deal doesn't begin until next season. He is having a down year for whatever reason. Maybe it's the move to first base that affected him. No one seems to know for sure, but I don't see a team wanting to take on Jake Cronenworth's $80 million when questions have been raised about just what kind of player he's going to be going forward. So the Padres jumped on that one. They moved really early on Jake Cronenworth. who wasn't a free agent until after 2025. And they're going to have to live with this and hope he is the player that they thought when they signed him to that deal. I want to thank you guys for all your questions, some good ones this week. Thanks, everyone, for watching on YouTube. You can subscribe there. Thanks, everyone, for listening on the podcast. Of course, you can subscribe there as well, wherever you get your podcasts. We are eight days away. Our next show will be the day before the deadline. You're probably going to see me bleary-eyed, but you're going to see me. 
We'll talk next week. Hey, FT Live fam. If you're new to the party on the BetMGM Sports app, enter the promo code FOUL, F-O-U-L, for up to $1,000 back if your first bet loses. It's simple. Ready? Download the BetMGM Sports app on iOS or Android or visit BetMGM.com. Sign up and deposit into your newly created account. Place your first bet offer and receive up to $1,000 back in bonus bets if it loses. If the bet does lose, your bonus bets will be available once the wager is settled. Gotta use the bonus code. Foul.